Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Your goodness to us is free. Uh, It is not because we are good in and of ourselves, but to the contrary, we have lived as enemies of what is good. And yet you have chosen mercifully uh, to do good to us. And so we thank you, God. And that's why we gather here, Um, not to commend ourselves as righteous to you or to commend ourselves as righteous to one another, but just to celebrate your free goodness in Christ and by the Spirit. God, I pray during this time we have in Sunday school that you would help us to uh, understand in greater measure the things that you've revealed about yourself and about the salvation that you have won for us to the praise of the glory of your grace. And God, I pray that you would help us not just to understand, uh, but, but really uh, to praise you for your grace. God, would you draw us uh, to worship, uh, to a worship that is more truly in spirit and in truth. God, help us to know you, the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we pray these things to you, Father, In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the Spirit that he's given. Amen. All right, so we are just past the midway point of a series on the doctrine of the Trinity. I'll begin by reviewing where we've been the last three weeks to lay a foundation for where we're headed. And also, like I said last week, uh, you are most helped by by hearing these truths over and over again, wave after wave, having your mind renewed one degree at a time with the knowledge of God. So hitting the high points, uh, the support for the doctrine of the Trinity, and by that I mean that there is one true living God, and He has shown us that He exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom are fully God, each of whom share in full in the one, single, same, undivided, divine nature. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Um, And we know that this is what God is like uh, because of how He's revealed Himself, and that doesn't just rest on the proper interpretation of just a few verses in the Bible, Like, here a verse, there a verse, paste them together just right, and presto, the doctrine of the Trinity. No, actually, the support for the doctrine of the Trinity is the whole Bible. The Bible's big story. The Father sent the Son and sent the Spirit to accomplish salvation for sinners. The Son came from the Father and became incarnate. The Spirit came from the Father and Son and was poured out. And so we know God is a trinity because of how God saved us. In the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son to dwell among us. And then the Father sent the Spirit to dwell in us. And so the revelation of the trinity and the gospel, the good news of our salvation, are bundled together. The doctrine of the trinity and the gospel of our salvation go together. God showed himself to be triune in saving us. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And we know this because the Son and the Spirit showed up in person, coming from the Father to save us. The Bible's big story, God sent God and God to save. 
So when you think about God as a trinity, um, one of the things I, I want to train your, your mind uh, to do here is that you don't first and foremost think of like the, a divine triangle or something, um, as if God's triune nature is the great triangularity of God, because then you'll have a very unsteady knowledge of God's triune nature, and the doctrine will seem to you as something random or strange or uh, something that doesn't pertain to you in, in any way. Rather, when you think about God as a trinity, um, don't think about a triangle. You should think about the gospel. and You should think about who is Jesus and what has God done to save us and what must be true about God in light of the gospel. So when the Father sent His Son to become incarnate, to be anointed by the Spirit in order to save us, God opened up His inner life for us to behold. And we were given the privilege of overhearing the Father and the incarnate Son speak to each other and speaking to each other about the life that they lived together before the creation of the world within the eternal life of God. They spoke of their eternal love for each other and delight in each other in the love of the Spirit. And so Jesus has taught us that for eternity, God has lived the most perfectly happy and full life that could possibly be lived. Infinite blessedness, perfect bliss. John Piper says that within the triune Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God has been uppermost in His own affections for all eternity. And this belongs to His very nature. For He has begotten and loved the Son from all eternity. Therefore, God has been supremely and eternally happy in the fellowship of the Trinity. So God is and always has been and always will be. A father and the son he begets, sharing perfect love and glory in the joy and fellowship of their spirit. And the more that sinks into your mind, uh, that this is who God is, uh, it will make a difference on so many different levels. Uh, We saw last week that the great end goal of our salvation is God sharing with us the bliss of his own triune life. In redemption, God welcomes us into his own love and fellowship and joy and glory that he enjoys and experiences within himself as the blessed trinity. So when God creates man and then saves some sinful men and loves them and takes joy in them, and receives glory from them, it actually does not add any love or joy or glory to God. We supplement God's blessedness in no way. Who has given to God that He should repay? But rather, God invites us into the love and joy and fellowship and glory that he has had within himself for all of eternity as the Trinity, a perfect gift of sharing and giving. 
So in the gift of salvation, we participate in God's triune fillness. God shares his inner life and blessedness with us. Michael Reeves puts it this way. The Father gives all his glory, his love, his blessing, his very self exclusively to the Son. And then he sends his Son to share with us his fullness. There are some prayers in the epistles of Paul. Um, it's a very Trinitarian prayer in Ephesians 3, where Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, that you would be strengthened by the Spirit to understand how big the love of the Son is. And I paraphrased that to accentuate the Trinitarian parts. Okay? You, won't, you won't read it exactly like that, but that's all in there. And then at the end of that prayer, he says, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What is it, to be filled with the fullness of God? That is to, to know and have a finite, creaturely share in God's own love and fellowship and life. So when God seeks his own glory in the world... Through creation and redemption, it is a gracious sharing of himself with us. And he glorifies himself by communicating the fullness of who he is to elect sinners and angels. Today, that's our foundation. Um, I want to continue thinking about how God's salvation that he won for us is a Trinitarian work from beginning to end. And actually, all of God's works are Trinitarian works. There is no such thing as a non-Trinitarian work of God, because God is a Trinity. That's who He is. Our salvation is from our triune God. He's salvation's source. Our salvation is through our triune God. He's salvation's accomplisher. Both of those we'll talk about this week. And last week, we saw our salvation is to our triune God. He is salvation's ultimate goal. So from and through and to Him, our salvation is from, through, and to God in three persons. So first, our triune God is the source of our salvation. It is from Him. Our salvation does not only lead us into participation in God's triune fellowship, our salvation flows out of God's eternal triune life. Let's start back at John 17. We've been in John 17 the last two weeks. It's one of the most breathtaking chapters of the entire Bible. So our present point will be seen in verse 2, but I'll begin reading in verse 1. Set the context. If you look at verse 1 with me now, John 17... When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the hour had come, and that hour referred to Jesus' impending death and his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, 
His enthronement in heaven as Lord over all. And, and this death and resurrection and enthronement of Christ, according to these verses, enables him to do what verse 2 stated, to give eternal life to all whom the Father had given to him. So did you notice in verse 2 that Jesus giving eternal life to his people is not the only giving that's talked about in that verse? There are two other acts of giving mentioned. Look at verse 2 again. You, God the Father, have given him, God the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you, God the Father, have given him, God the Son. So our salvation, Jesus gives us eternal life. But there are two acts of giving within God that precede that and enable that to happen. They were in the past tense. In this verse, the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh. And the Father has given the Son a people. Because these are given from God the Father to God the Son, these two acts of given are placed within God's triune life. And we'll see in a little bit these inter-Trinitarian gifts in the inner life of God were given before the world existed in eternity past. Our salvation in receiving eternal life has its ultimate origins in God's triune life. Before the Son gave up His life on the cross, the Father willed to give the Son authority over all flesh so that He could give eternal life to His people. And before the Son gave up His life on the cross, the Father gave to the Son a group of people to whom the Son would, in fact, give eternal life. This is a very Trinitarian thing, the source of our salvation. That God the Father gave the Son a people. Um, the Gospel of John speaks elsewhere of these people that the Father gave to the Son. They're mentioned here in chapter 17 several times. Look at verse 6. Jesus speaking of his own disciples in his day. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you, the Father, gave them to me, the Son. Verse 9, I am praying for them, his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you, Father, have given me, the Son, for they are yours. And then in verse 24, Jesus speaks of his future disciples, of disciples yet to come, of those who have not yet believed in him. When Jesus spoke these words. And in verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That is an amazing verse. Jesus says, even future generations of his disciples had already been given by the Father to the Son. John 6, 37 all that the, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
Verse 39 of chapter 6. This is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Our salvation flows out of God's inner life and springs forth from God's triune fellowship because the Father gave a people to His begotten Son to save and give eternal life to. You know, there are not many verses in the New Testament that speak of things that were before the world existed. We looked in depth at a couple of them a couple of weeks ago where Jesus in John 17 talked about the love that He and the Father shared before the foundation of the world and the glory that they shared before the world was. And we said, you know, you've, um, seems like you've got to be kind of gutsy to say anything about what was going on before the world was. And we said, well, actually, you only have to be gutsy enough to read and believe the New Testament because it tells us. Um, and in addition to these two verses uh, about this inter, inter-Trinitarian love within God, um, all the other verses that speak about things, realities before the foundation of the world, speak to the source of our salvation ultimately being within God's triune fellowship where the Father purposed to save through the Son and for the Son. So I think this, I think this is a comprehensive list as, as far as I am aware of all the verses in the New Testament that speak about something before the world was, in addition to the two in John 17 we looked at a couple of weeks ago. So here are the other eternity past verses. Ephesians 1.4, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. So before the foundation of the world, the Father willed that the Son would become like a lamb who would, who would be without blemish and spill his precious blood to ransom sinners. Revelation 13.8 speaks of the names that were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Matthew 13, 31 through 34, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and before Him will be gathered all the nations and He will separate people out one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left, and then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ before the ages began. And literally that phrase is, before times eternal. 
Titus 1-2, the same phrase is used. God, who never lies, promised eternal life before times eternal. So God promised eternal life before times eternal. God saved us and gave us grace in Christ before times eternal. So within God's inner life, within His perfect triune fullness, He purposed to accomplish this plan and give a people to His Son and to send His Son to become as a lamb slain to give them life. Our salvation is truly a gift. But long before it was a gift of love and grace to us, it was a gift of love and glory given within God. The Father gave His Son a people. This is a gift of glory because the Father and Son, who both love the glory of one another, are both glorified in the accomplishment of this salvation. Jesus said in John 17, He desires that His people would be with Him to see His glory. The glory the Father gives to Him because the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. If our salvation finds its roots at the bottom in eternity past, then our salvation must come from God's triune life. Because God's triune life is all there was in eternity past. We are saved and given eternal life in Christ. Everyone who repents of their sin and trusts in what Jesus did for sinners are given eternal life fundamentally at the bottom because God eternally loves His Son and delights in the glory He shares with the Son. So the source of our salvation is the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father, which is to say that the source of our salvation is God because God is the Father loving His begotten Son in the love of the Spirit. Um, so if you are a follower of Jesus and you have received the gift of eternal life because you've believed in Jesus and God has promised that He sent His Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, that's not ultimately because you were more spiritual or wise or righteous than anyone else. It's ultimately because God gave you a sinner in need of saving to His Son before the world was. And if you really embrace this truth and let it grab hold of your heart, it will lay low your, your sense of self-righteousness, your sense of pride. It will help you tremendously not to get puffed up about you're the one on the straight and narrow path while all the world goes to pot. You'll look down on others less and less, and you'll boast in God more and more. You'll never win the fight against pride just by trying to convince yourself that you're actually not that great. You'll make headway against pride by thinking big thoughts about God and the glory of His love and the freeness of His mercy and the eternal 
roots of your salvation within the Trinity, the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. So really, to drill down into this reality of the blessed Trinity as the source of our salvation, it showcases the sheer graciousness of our salvation. We, we are saved by grace alone, and the Trinity as the source of our salvation proves it. So this highlights the grace of our salvation because, first of all, our salvation is rooted in eternity past. And that, that easily, that, that spotlights how salvation is all of God's initiative and God's work. Again, God was the only one around before times eternal. Who wants to argue that they had a hand in the eternal giving of a people to the Son by the Father? Does anyone want to say that they were a part of that joint venture? Now, seeing the source of our salvation in God's eternal triune life highlights grace, that it's by grace alone, a free gift in every sense of the word free. Our salvation is by grace alone also because of how God is utterly self-sufficient and happy as the blessed Trinity. Again, we've, we've been talking about God perfectly full of love and glory within himself. He needs nothing. He's infinite in his own triune blessedness and happiness. And so he creates us, he saves us, not to fill up any kind of lack of glory or love or fellowship or joy, but out of the overflow of, his, of the fullness of his glory and love and fellowship and joy. So because salvation comes from a perfectly full and satisfied God who shares himself rather than from an incomplete and needy God who depends on his creation somehow for his own fulfillment and satisfaction, to see our salvation right as the overflow of God's perfect fullness and happiness as the Trinity. This also highlights the graciousness of it. When we see that, that our being saved is not a contribution to God's own happiness and love and glory. His joy and love and glory is not increased, but rather is just an extension of the glory and love and joy that he already had within himself. The bliss of God's life is not enhanced by saving us. The bliss of God's life is just shared with us in saving us. Grace upon grace upon grace. When we are saved, it's not like, okay, let's, let's make a deal. God, you give me eternal life and I'll give you glory. So we both get something out of this, right? No. Because God is a trinity, God is in need of nothing and lacks in no way in love or glory or joy. And so I said the very first week, I said, God is a God of love because God is a trinity. And I said, God is a God of grace because God is a trinity. And hopefully now you can <clears throat> understand how we can make that claim. God's Trinitarian nature grounds his utter self-sufficiency. And so God's perfect triune self-sufficiency grounds salvation by grace alone. You can think about that more in your own time. Fred Sanders says, uh, when one is suitably impressed 
with the absolute completeness of God's triune life, one recognizes that it is impossible to increase the perfection and happiness of it. As a result, the graciousness of God stands out more conspicuously against this vast background of Trinitarian self-sufficiency. We are saved by grace alone because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So our salvation not only flows from Him and to Him, it is also through Him. And, and what I mean by that is the Trinity is not only the source and, and goal or destination of our salvation, He's also the accomplisher of it. It is through Him. And so we can see this either by examining kind of the big picture of salvation, which we've already done some in this series, or we can see this by looking at a detailed, somewhat step-by-step way that, that God accomplished our salvation. Considering the whole, we see that God, the Trinity, accomplished salvation, but also each step along the way was an accomplishment of God, the Trinity. So, so first, the big picture um, Galatians 4, 4 through 6, we've talked about this verse several times. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's a beautiful three verses. Um, that God sent His Son so that you would be adopted as a son, and God sent His Spirit to create in you uh, the love of the Son for the Father. God sent His Spirit to embrace you in the love of the Father and the Son. So God redeemed us by sending the Son, and then the Father together with the Son sent the Spirit. Uh, If we want to take a different, more in-depth look at the big picture of salvation, we could consider Ephesians 1. If you turn there, Ephesians 1. This is one of the most beloved passages in all of Scripture that talks about the blessings of salvation in Jesus, and it shows the pervasively Trinitarian structure of it. Ephesians 1. Starting in verse 3, blessed be, so praise be to Him, glory be to Him, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, stop. Already, right, the identity of God in the first part of verse 1 is stated in Trinitarian terms. God is called the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, Christ means the one anointed with the Spirit. Okay? So, blessed be God, the Father of the Son, who's anointed with the Spirit. And in the second part of verse 3, there's this, this wonderful big picture statement about the benefits of salvation. The Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I think spiritual blessing here 
doesn't mean like spiritual as opposed to physical, immaterial as opposed to material, but spiritual here, I think, means something like having to do with the Holy Spirit. Okay, even then, there are a few options of what exactly that, that would refer to. Uh, we don't need to press into that now, but uh, the blessings of salvation are the blessings we receive from the Spirit. So, there's a simple, big-picture Trinitarian reading of salvation. The Father has blessed us in the Son with the blessings of the Spirit. And we could go on. And, and I'm just going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and I'm going to try and I'm just going to clarify who the pronouns are referring to, okay? And it's going to feel a little disorienting, and that's okay. I think maybe that this is all one big sentence in the original Greek, and there are so many lines drawn in so many different directions. I think part of the point is you're supposed to read it and go, what? Something about the Father, Son, and Spirit saved us, and it's really wonderful. Okay, so Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, the Father. In love, He, the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself, the Father, as sons through Jesus Christ, the Son, according to the purpose of His, the Father's will, to the praise of His, the Father's glorious grace, with which He, the Father, has blessed us in the Beloved, the Son. In Him, the Son, we have redemption through His, the Son's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His, the Father's grace, which He, the Father, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His, the Father's will, according to His, the Father's purpose, which He, the Father, set forth in Christ, the Son, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, the Son." things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, the Son, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of His, the Father's will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, the Son, might be to the praise of His, the Father's glory. In Him, the Son, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, the Son, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit, who, the Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His, the Father's glory. So you could, you know, maybe quibble with a couple of those, like maybe that actually refers to the Son and not the Father, or maybe when it says to the praise of His glory, it's referring to God generally and not one of the persons of the Godhead in particular. I'm fine with that. But just the big picture, I mean, we have salvation from the Father in the Son 
by the Spirit. The Father ordains salvation. He wills and elects and adopts. And the Son accomplishes salvation. He redeems us and reveals and fulfills the Father's purposes. The Spirit applies salvation. He seals and secures salvation for us, which is the salvation that the Son accomplished according to the plan of the Father. And, and you could even see this, this uh, all the early creeds of the church, you know, says something like, we believe in the Father and yada, da, da, da. We believe in the Son, yada, da, da, da. We believe in the Spirit, etc. Well, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it almost reads like, like that uh, same basic three-step movement, right? Blessed be the Father. Here's all this stuff the Father's done. And the Son, and here are these things the Son has done. And then finally at the end there, then the Spirit and His work in applying salvation won for us. I mean, so many times that the Bible speaks about salvation, there's a, there's a Trinitarian cadence to it. I noticed one this week. I was reading uh, 1 Corinthians 6, reading for something else, not for the purpose of Sunday school, but I was struck by a short and simple statement. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, I'll start in verse 9. It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Which means some people will be deceived about this. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the good news. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what is it to be saved from sin? Well, it's to be washed and justified and sanctified in the name of the Son and by the Spirit of the Father. And if your eyes are open to this kind of thing, you'll see it all over the place. Um, I've heard someone say that, that the doctrine of the Trinity is, is presupposed on virtually every page of the New Testament. Just little oblique references like this are all throughout. And I think that's in part because God revealed Himself to be the Trinity already by the time that the New Testament was written because the Son had become incarnate and the Spirit had been poured out. And so the people who were receiving these Gospels and these letters um, already came with a knowledge of God's Trinitarian nature. All right. As I said earlier... It's not just the big picture of salvation that can be seen as a work of God, the Trinity. We see it in the specifics too. Every step of the way of Christ's saving work. And, and um, it, it's a very good and Trinitarian thing to be Christ-centered. It's like, well, should we preach the Trinity? Uh, Pastor Keith seems to think that like, the Trinity is really important. But Paul says that I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. Which is it? Okay, you don't have to choose, all right? As long as you answer the question correctly, who is Jesus? Then when you preach Christ and Him crucified, you are uh, celebrating the salvation of our triune God. Which actually, you know, if you, if you just lo- believe the gospel and you love the gospel, 
and you're trying to build your life on the gospel, what Jesus has done to save sinners, you are more Trinitarian than you know. So, every step of the way of Christ's saving work is a Trinitarian act. Incarnation, his ministry on earth, his death, resurrection, ascension, session, Jesus' Pentecost. At every stage, the good news about Christ carrying out the work of salvation is a Trinitarian work. So, Jesus' incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Uh, Luke 1 35, his incarnation when God the Son took to his person a complete human nature just like ours so that he could live a perfect life in our place, die a sinner's death in our place, and then raise from the dead so that he could give us eternal life and share um, eternal life with us, which is to know the one true God and his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent in the fellowship of the Spirit. So, the incarnation. Luke 1, 35, the angel says to Mary... The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Matthew one twenty, as he, uh, also the Christmas story, as he, Joseph, considered these things, like, whoa, my wife has a baby. Behold, uh, my fiancé, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So in the incarnation, the Son right, took on a complete human nature in the womb of Mary, but this miracle was accomplished by the power of the Most High, referring to the Father, I take it, as He worked by the Holy Spirit. We celebrate at this time that the Son was conceived in the womb of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So, the miracle of Christmas is a very Trinitarian thing. The Son came into the world to be born as a man. The Son came from the Father and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Likewise, Jesus' ministry. Jesus said a lot of things like, I came to do the work of the Father. And the Father worked His works in and through the Son. John 5, 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 14, 10 is astounding. Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Just as a side note, then later Jesus says, uh, in relation to, I'm going to send the Spirit, he says, and the Father and the Son will, you know, take up residence in you. How is that? Well, he will send the Spirit, and just as the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Spirit, so the Father and Son are in the Holy Spirit. But John 14, 10, do you not believe I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. In his life and ministry as a man, the Son, right? he was the one doing these works, but 
He was doing the will of the Father. So much so that it could even be said that the Father was dwelling in him, doing his works. But he was also doing this in the power of the Spirit, uh, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Remember how Jesus began his public ministry? At his baptism. This is when um, he went to the Jordan to be baptized by the, um, the prophet John, John the Baptist. And he came up out of the water, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. So, oh, that's the Father. And then the, the Holy Spirit um, manifested himself in the form of a dove to come down, um, probably as a symbol of, of God's love for the Son, but also to signal that, that this was the Christ, this was the anointed one, the promised Savior who would come in the line of David. And then right after Jesus is baptized to begin his public ministry in this very Trinitarian way, right, the Father says, this is my son, I love him, and the Spirit comes to anoint him. Then in Luke 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And then Jesus passes that test, and then as he leaves the wilderness in 414, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. So in all of Jesus' ministry, okay, yes, the Son is the one who became incarnate and is, is teaching and is doing mighty works and is living a genuinely human life, but he was doing so as one who is accomplishing the will of the Father in communion with the Father and by the power of the Spirit. All of Jesus' ministry was an act of God the Trinity. Um, I'll leave this to you to look up on your own time some of these more verses about um, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, His teaching ministry, His mighty deeds. And all of these highlight more of just how His ministry on earth, He came as the Son from the Father, doing the works of the Father, speaking words from the Father, and all in the power of the Spirit that He received from the Father. Hebrews 9.14 Turn, turn to this verse. I'd like for you to look at it in your own Bible. So you can think, huh, that really is in there. Hebrews 9, 14. Jesus' death was also an act of God the Trinity. Jesus was still the subject of um, the crucifixion. He's still the one who was crucified. The Father was not crucified. The Son, the Spirit was not the crucified one. And yet, Jesus' death to win us for God was a work of God, the Trinity. Hebrews 9, 14. I'll, I'll read in 9, 13. And then the point here in the book of Hebrews is saying that what Jesus has done in his death on a cross is fulfills kind of the patterns of what, what God um, was, was communicating when he set up the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the sacrifices of, of goats and things and um, other animals. And the, the author of the book of Hebrews said those things actually never took away sin in and of themselves, but they pointed forward to the, to the thing that would take away sin 
which was the offering of the Son of God Himself when He would become incarnate and be um, a perfect lamb sacrificed. So in verse 13, the author, inspired by the Spirit of the book of Hebrews, says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, okay, if you didn't understand that, that's okay. Just try and understand the next verse. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will will this purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So on the cross, the incarnate Son offered Himself to the Father through the eternal Spirit. And so he secured for us eternal redemption. You know, many people throughout church history have noted that God could not have accomplished atonement for our sin if he was not a trinity. Uh, God could not have offered himself as a substitute for sinners to save them if he was not triune. But because God is the blessed trinity, he could accomplish atonement in and of himself. So God could provide an offering for sin and also be the offering for sin. He could offer himself and be the one who received that offering. Because God is triune, God can accomplish atonement. God can pour out the punishment due sinners as the rightful judge. And God could receive upon Himself simultaneously the punishment due sinners as the all-sufficient Savior, because God is not a single-personed God, but the one true God exists eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So, you, we have no good news if God is not a trinity. Likewise, Jesus' resurrection, this is somewhat more well-known But the Father, Son, and Spirit are all said to uh, raise Jesus from the dead. I'll read just a a few of these. Galatians 1.1 says, God the Father raised Him from the dead. That's clear. Jesus Himself said, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews say, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days. But He was speaking about the temple of His body. I will resurrect myself in three days. And likewise, in John 10, Jesus says, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. And the Spirit, likewise. uh, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Again, the resurrection of Christ. We preach Christ risen from the dead. And the resurrection of Christ, we know in the background, was the salvation that God our Trinity has accomplished. Likewise, Jesus' ascension, that is his rising to the Father, In his session, that's his sitting down at the Father's right hand, enthroned as the sovereign over the universe. 
and Pentecost when the Son sent the Spirit. So these verses in John, um, John 14, 16, I, the Son, will ask the Father, and He, the Father, will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in the name of the Son, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I've said to you. John 15, 26, not only that the Father sends the Son, but the Son, together with the Father, sends the Spirit. But when the Helper comes, the Spirit, whom I, the Son, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me, the Son. Again, right, the Apostle John is not trying to state, there's one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's just like, look, we're, we're all assuming that's true. I'm just going to tell you what's happening. So the Father will send the Spirit in the name of the Son. The Son will send the Spirit from the Father. And the coming of the Spirit is, is connected to Jesus' ascension to the Father. I won't read these verses, but um, Jesus said things like, the Spirit's going to come when I go to the Father. So here's a wonderful verse, Acts 2.32. Why don't you look this up? Speaking of the sending of the Spirit, and the sending of the Spirit really is the part of the good news of what Christ accomplished. One of the first things said about Jesus in the Gospels, right, is, is hey, this is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. You could think of it as that Jesus at the cross cleansed us in order to be a dwelling place where God could dwell in us by the Spirit. <clears throat> okay, Acts 2.32. Here's the Trinitarian drama of Pentecost. And this Jesus, God has raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore... Jesus, exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Who received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit? The Son, the exalted Son, as the God-man. And He, the Son, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It's amazing. The Son was raised by the Father and exalted and seated at His right hand. And then He, as our representative, as our head, as our Savior, received the promised Holy Spirit from the Father. And then He poured forth this that they were seeing and hearing. So every step of the way, every step of the way, we are saved by the work of Christ. And so we preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ who lived and died and rose again. We preach um, that Christ died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. And we know that the God of this salvation in Christ, from beginning to end, this salvation in Christ is won by the God who is and always will be and can be nothing other than Father, Son, and Spirit. Next week is baptism. Am I stealing your thunder, Matt? All right. <laughs> Next week's baptism.
Uh, so be here. That would be a wonderful time to get to see followers of Jesus identify with the work of Christ, his death on the cross, and, and the resurrection of Jesus. And they will be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, like Jesus taught us to do. Let's close in prayer. God, help us to, again, understand these things more deeply, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. And I pray that it would change the way we live, that we would be um, more eager to fellowship with you, to know you, to enjoy you, and that we would be more eager to please you by being like you and being gracious and merciful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.